0: You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to the new episode of the Tech Tank podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, the director of the Center for Technology Innovation and the co-host of this episode. The U.S. Senate recently unveiled the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and this is a $1 trillion bill that allocates $65 billion to broadband infrastructure. Now, the goal of these targeted investments is to make high-speed internet access more affordable and accessible, particularly for underserved rural communities. That's what we're talking about today, folks. This joins a host of efforts introduced over the course of the pandemic by the Emergency Connectivity Fund, the Lifeline program. But universal service still lags despite these efforts. I recently found out that as of 2021, a quarter of American adults still do not have broadband internet service at home and those who live in rural areas are still disproportionately impacted. A recent report by the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies says that 38% of African Americans in the rural South lack internet access. And that's really important because one in 10 Black Americans still live in a non-metro area with populations concentrated in the Southeast where the legacy of Jim Crow left its mark. And it also says something about how important it is for us to connect communities of color, tribal lands, and others who, if left offline, will not be able to benefit from this new economy. So in today's episode, we're gonna dig deep and when I say think deep, I'm not talking about we're gonna pull out a shovel and just start shoveling. <laughs> we're gonna dig deep into exploring how the digital divide has impacted rural communities and how we can use targeted investments from the infrastructure bill, as well as from the efforts of the people that I've invited to join me today to make broadband more effective. My guests today include Olita Fitzgerald, who is the director of the Children's Defense Fund Southern Regional Office and the regional administrator for the Southern Rural Black Women's Initiative for Economics and Social Justice. Joe Cap, who is president and co-founder of the National Center for Research Development. He is also the co-founder of Rural Rise, a community of organizations that first started in the Appalachian West Virginia area. This organization aims to increase opportunity and prosperity for small and rural communities across the U.S. And Barry Tozer, EVP of Declaration Networks. And you may know him if you read my stuff as an individual that I profiled in my own work on rural broadband, especially when I visited him in Garrett County, Maryland. And I don't know if he knows this, he's also in my book. <laughs> so, Gary, you're going to see yourself in my book as well. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for Thank you. you. Thank you. I want to start, Alita, with you. How accurate is this depiction when it comes to internet access in Black rural communities. You are in a place that my grandmother was born in Mississippi. And I'm real curious to really hear from you, particularly in your role at the Children's Defense Fund and what you've been doing on rural broadband, particularly for women. Are we really addressing some systemic inequalities like poverty when it comes to introducing broadband? Nicole, thank you for having me on this
1: podcast. Let me start by saying that my technological skills are not top par, but I do know quality broadband when I see it. The percentages that you give of people in rural communities at 77%, those numbers would be high for the state of Mississippi. There's somewhere around 69% of families in the state who have access to broadband and internet services and in our work with this institute for local self reliance around technology issues and technology expansion in rural communities and particularly African American communities across the south we understand that of the percentage of families who have access we're told that technologically they don't have broadband they don't have what can be defined as quality and affordable broadband access. We are still dealing with families who are paying exorbitant prices for access. We're dealing with slow internet service in rural communities. So in answer to your first question, I would say that we don't rank at the 77% in rural places. And even at the percentage that we do have, many of those folks don't have the kind of internet services that we will need in the 21st
0: century. I'm thinking about a woman that I spoke to recently, Alita Kathy Trimble, who is in uh, Marin, Alabama. And she made this comment that has just stuck with me when we begin to think about the Black rural South, which is we were already dealing with a whole lot of other issues and now this, right? In terms of how we integrate broadband into the everyday lives. Of folks in your community. I really want people to understand, Alita, and I'm going to turn to Barry. when you think about things like telehealth and remote learning and remote education, what is the impact on particularly children and their families? Because this is something that you do at the Defense Fund. Oh, yes.
1: Nicole, way before COVID-19 raised its serious head, we were looking at broadband access across these communities in Mississippi. We had young people who if they were lucky and had access to transportation, who oh, were going as people talk about it, but it's real. They're going into parking lots of Walmart and McDonald's to do homework. We have school systems that don't have strong internet access and don't have teachers who are qualified to engage children in technology. In the Jackson Public School District, several years ago, the Internet services were so bad that children were impacted when they were taking their final exams and their state tests, when services would drop and get overloaded and all kinds of things. So it impacts children in their real way. In terms of the work we're doing around expanding access to broadband and rural communities, our first focus was on education, but then COVID hit, and our focus Change somewhat to telehealth. So, we are engaged in activities and three Electric Power Association service areas one in Mississippi, one in Alabama, and one in Georgia, looking at the cost of telehealth, the savings that we could gain if we had telehealth services. Given that many of, just like with education, specialties don't exist in rural communities. So, COVID has taught us that we don't have access to healthcare, that hospitals are closing, that even the emergency rooms, if they're there, don't have the kind of physicians and support staff to deal with the kind of disease we are seeing. So add that to cost savings that could be found if we were treating regular kind of and managing the regular kind of diseases now, given COVID, I guess you'd call them regular, and how, what those cost savings would be. So, the internet is critical to education and to access
0: to healthcare in rural communities. I've got so much to unpack in what you said. And that's why I'm so excited that all of you are here talking about this, because I don't think we spent enough time in the DC area really digging into the weeds of what the problem is. Barry, it's so interesting because you and I met prior to the pandemic, if you recall where we were looking at what you were doing with the Microsoft Airband Initiative and what you were trying to do with your company declaration to get access through other measures and other solutions to people in various communities. I'm curious from you, what has been your target when you think about rural areas and broadband, especially the work that you're doing in the Western part of Maryland and in the Chesapeake area and other places where you're expanding and you deal with farmers, small business owners, the elderly and others, I'd like to hear, similar to what Alita's talking about, similar trends or what you're finding as we go into this pandemic space when it comes to rural broadband.
2: Sure, Nicole. And thank you so much for uh, inviting me to the program here today. And it's also a bonus to hear that I'm included in your book. I'm really excited about that Mm -hmm. and looking forward to seeing that when it comes out. So thanks again for having me
0: today. And Barry, I talk very well about you, okay? So you'll be okay. You'll be (laughs) proud.
2: (laughs) I'm glad to hear that too. Not a
0: tell-all book.
2: (laughs) Yeah, good. That's good. Thank you very much. And our company, Declaration Networks Group, which is known more as NewBeam, N-E-U-B-E-A-M, that is our service and brand name in these markets. We are really a small ISP with only about 50 employees, although we've had nice, steady growth and we've made the Inc. 5000 for the second Year in a row. So we'll be on that list when it comes out here in the next week or two. We serve three markets the Eastern Shore of Virginia, Garrick County, Maryland, which is the westernmost county in Maryland, and Northeast Washington. As you mentioned, our work with Microsoft, we have a cooperative effort as part of the Airband initiative with Microsoft and doing some good work in Northeast Washington, our newest market. And as you mentioned, these challenges are great. Our primary technology is fixed wireless. Although we have been migrating some to fiber to mix that in, to have a different set of technologies that we can offer. And our difficulties have always been mainly technical more than anything else because of the extreme difficulties in reaching some of these locations. For instance, on the eastern shore of Virginia, there are many necks, as they call them, necks near waterways that are difficult to reach through any technology and uh, very remote farms. You mentioned uh, the farming communities. A lot of these are just very rural and there's little density in any of these areas. So the fixed wireless solution that we have brought forward in many cases has been the most effective and efficient solution to get to people. We have topography issues in Garrett County and in the state of Washington, and again, density issues there as well. There are outlandish costs that some people told us about, it cost $5,000, $10,000, or $15,000 just to get a fiber connection from a provider to reach their property. So in many cases, we've been able to come up with solutions for thousands of people now, regular costs that people pay for good internet service, none of these very high startup costs that I just mentioned. Now, the consumers have been extremely excited about what we're doing and other companies like ours. And more excited over time. Five years ago, in some of these markets, some of the residents weren't that interested in a broadband connection. They had DSL, and that's what they used for a long time, or they're using satellite services. And in many cases, people thought that's as good as it's going to get. I'm not willing to try something new and different. But that has changed dramatically, and especially as you mentioned, Nicole, with the pandemic where you know people have just needed enough. But the elderly population for telehealth, everyone who's working at home, everyone who has needed to have online education, all of the families across the board, we've been able to try to address that as people look for a good internet connection, a good broadband solution. But the difficulties are there. It's still very challenging and as we've said for a long time, if this were easy to do, somebody else would have done this a long time ago.
0: Mary, I still remember from my visit because you were so generous to help me meet different people. The conversation we had with the Garrett County Social Services, you remember where they mentioned to me Daphne, who I write about as well. It was an essay for people who are interested that is available on the Brookings website. Case managers were driving two hours just to collect data from people for social services and then driving back to the office to put the data in the computer and then driving back to the client's home just to check on their progress. The lack of productivity and the fact that we're failing some folks that need that service in real time. I just can't imagine how that has been impacted by the pandemic with all the needs. Have you seen some things really exacerbated as a result?
2: It's amazing the, the lengths that people have gone to get an internet connection, connection to the world. And during the pandemic, even more so many critical needs that, that, that people have had. But people having to drive to parking lots to try to hop onto someone's Wi Fi network because they know that the building that they would sit out in front of in the parking lot is connected. So that's the way that they would get to the internet or they go to, you know, McDonald's because McDonald's is connected for these markets that even have a McDonald's. So it's amazing what people have done. But what we and other companies have done during the pandemic, just one thing, is we created a lot of Wi-Fi hotspots in different areas so that people during the pandemic were able to go to more places like that if they still weren't able to be connected at home or just if they were on the move somewhere and they needed to go and know that there's a spot in town where they could get a good connection. We put up free of charge Wi-Fi hotspots in and around towns and communities so that people would have. A whole way of being connected. I mean, that's just one small way that we've been able to help out here during the pandemic.
0: Joe, I'm excited to bring you in this conversation as well. As much as we've heard some of the challenges that families have experienced and residents have experienced from Barry and Olita, part of it is we often miss how the digital divide affected entrepreneurs. Right. We think yeah. that it was just primarily about individual people, but it affected businesses. And here you are with Rural Rise. And I'm so excited because you and I will get to work together on a project that's going to delve even deeper into the rural divide. West Virginia, rural rise, building the capacity of rural entrepreneurs, you had to have challenges with broadband. So out for us, what happened with those business opportunities for rural entrepreneurs who were not able to connect efficiently?
3: Yeah. So first of all, thank you for inviting me. I'm a super fan of yours and all the great work that you've been doing. I've been working in rural communities for the last eight years, maybe even longer after selling a business and retiring out to West Virginia. I began working very closely with the Rural Community College and was just amazed and astounded. Now, I want to take a step back because I think there's something important for your listeners to understand. There's a lot of conversations about underserved communities, but when you look in rural communities, It starts with being unserved, right? And so it's not even a question of uploads and download speeds. It's a question about whether or not folks even have access. And that was before the pandemic. And the pandemic has actually put a finer point on the challenges that all communities and rural communities face. And oftentimes there's this conversation about rural versus urban. And I think it's really important to look at it a little bit differently, because I think that creates a little bit of a division. And the reality is that Um, If you're living in an urban community, the majority of your food, the stuff that we eat on a day in a day out basis are probably coming from rural communities. COVID has created significant challenges with regards to logistics, supply chains, and a lot of companies are beginning to rethink about how they've had those supply chains structured with overseas and looking at rural communities and the ample resources, whether it's lumber or other types of resources that exists within our rural communities. But if you look at the challenges that they face, it really runs the gamut from working from home, telehealth, telemedicine, entertainment, shopping, remote learning. A lot of the work that i did was working across Appalachia in, in K-through-12 schools and and community colleges to help drive entrepreneurship and identify ways that rural communities can drive entrepreneurship and a lot of that has to do with learning. We also held events looking at tech and ag innovation and if you look at the farms of the future, In order for us to go ahead and feed the populations of the future, it's going to require greater access to technology, autonomous driving tractors, and various ways to enable our food streams and the logistics for the very foods that we eat on a regular basis. But it's not only that, Nicole, one of the biggest challenges that we saw was farmers and growers and people in rural communities all of a sudden on a dime had to change their business and had to go online. But the challenges were not just having internet access, it was also the digital literacy pieces. Many of them had not historically been online and had to learn a whole new way. And so a lot of the programs that were coming out were helping to drive sort of new businesses online, but there was still a significant need to help with digital literacy. You can't go ahead and take people who've maybe spent a lot of time in tractors or out in farms or are ranching, and then all of a sudden, on a dime, expect them to put it up an Instagram page or, or create a website. And couple that with the fact that a lot of the government programs, in order to be able to move quickly, you look at some of the programs from federal, state, and local programs, access to loans and loan programs, a lot of them required being able to go ahead and access paperwork online. And so, COVID had actually really driven a finer point on the array of issues that rural communities face. And so I think that it's really important for us going forward not to talk about rural versus urban. In order for us as a society to continue to advance and to progress, we're going to have to make sure that regardless of where you live, whether it's in the center of a city or it's in a small hollow in southern West Virginia, that everybody has the ability to access internet, because unfortunately, if we don't allow that, We're going to continue to see a significant divide based on all of the services and things that the internet and connectivity provide.
0: I feel like I'm in church and I would just give you a big (laughs) amen. Seriously, I listen, that is why we're having this podcast, because I think oftentimes we bunch these challenges, we make it rural versus urban. I told someone the other day, this is an American problem, right? And the more that we're able to really help both sides, we're bringing up everybody. But listen, we, we don't have to stay in this space because President Biden and Congress are working through this national infrastructure plan. It includes broadband for the first time as a critical asset. And there's going to be some authority given to state to actually appropriate funds to these issues. So first, let me start with Barry and then Alita, I'm going to come to you because there's not part of this infrastructure bill that's interesting, which is the soft side. But I want to start first, Barry, with the physical side, the physical asset, because that's what you do. Do you think we're on a great trajectory towards progress given what's happening in Washington with the infrastructure plan?
2: Nicole, I know a lot, a lot of people will say that the proof is in the pudding and they're going to want to wait and see how this all gets rolled out and implemented. But to me, it is a step, a big step in, in the right direction. These programs should be a, a great help to the providers and, and then carry through to consumers and businesses as well. We have participated. In other federal programs over the last five, six, seven years, the Connect America Fund, the USDA's Rural Utility Service Program, and these programs have helped us grow, and they've helped us to connect customers. Without these programs, if we had to just look at uh, private investment or even public-private partnerships, it's difficult. So these programs are are incredibly important to us and, and to the nation. In getting more broadband out there, $65 billion, that's a big number. May break down closer to $100 million uh, per state. When you break it down on a per state basis, it doesn't seem as large, but it is a big number. And the states are getting into the act too. We are very excited to see that the state uh, of Virginia, where we are headquartered and where we have our largest market, has announced a program. Our governor, Ralph Northam, along with uh, United States Senator Mark Warner, announced a $700 million program to expand broadband infrastructure, and to create universal internet access by 2024. And I hope this becomes a contest among the states. I I hope other governors and other senators say, hey, we're going to try to beat that state. We're going to try to do it first. And and they're going to be able to uh, extend financial opportunities and funding to companies to help build more broadband in their states. There are many challenges. Challenges for a small company like ours is that uh, we're a small provider. These programs are available to large providers too. So in, in the end, we just want everybody to have broadband, but we also want to see our company continue to grow and expand. And it can get difficult if we're going up against companies like Spectrum and Comcast to compete against them to try to get some of these this funding. So hopefully that'll all sort itself out and you know, there won't be all overlapping and overbuilt networks out there. Although a lot of people would think that's a, a good problem to have. Let, let the uh, consumers have multiple choices, and we agree with that as well. One last thing to mention though, because you're looking on this program to talk about what are some things that can be done to to accelerate you know, broadband uh, infrastructure development and implementation. These vehicles that, that they come from the federal government, they come from the state, they're complex, they're tedious. You know, we're a small company, the, the amount of resources that it takes, obviously we shouldn't just get the money just for asking for it, you have to go through a process. But the process is lengthy, it's cumbersome anyway, any way that, and we'll be interested to see what the next iteration of these programs look like so that if they're a little bit easier to apply for, that companies like ours can get through them and actually get the funding so that we can use it to build the network so that there isn't this long window and this long cycle to make all this happen because we need better broadband soon. And we just need to find a way that we're not going to have to take too long to make this happen. In the end, It's worth jumping through the hoops to make this happen. And and we're certainly glad for all of the attention that is now finally being put
0: into rural broadband. I think your point's a a well-taken Barry. right? Because I think part of it is this is like the first time we've had this down payment on broadband. I had uh, Congressman Clyburn on our podcast not too long ago, and we haven't seen this extensive type of down payment particularly in the areas of deployment. We also have to think about maybe there's enough to go around, right? If we're able to do this in a way where we facilitate investments in small companies, we figure out ways to buffer the private investments of larger companies, and we put government in places where their investment matters, where that's where I think states and cities are going to have to think very carefully about that. I do like your idea of this challenge grant. Because right now there is some concern that states are going to get a lot of money and they're not necessarily going to put it into this the way that we're talking about it today. So I think we just got to keep following that and ensure right. that states get a maximized benefit on this. But Alita, part of what also was very challenging with the infrastructure bill is this concept of soft assets. And that means, as President Biden and others were talking about and trying to get into this bill, child care. But look, I would say to your earlier point, what about tablets for kids? What about the type of resources that are going to be needed for people to get on telehealth? When you think about this infrastructure bill and you think about the physical assets, that's probably covered. But what are people going to need to get on this information superhighway? And what are you seeing, particularly for young people who are about to go back to school, what's going to be particularly important to make sure that your children in Mississippi and other parts of the South actually can ride this runway? Nicole, I want to go back to something that Joe was talking about and come forward with
1: what Barry just said. It is bigger than what we are thinking about right now in terms of in response to COVID and the situation that we are in right now. This country needs to have a conversation about where jobs are going and what our our children are going to need to have in terms of digital literacy to be able to participate in a 21st century economy. We are so far behind the eight ball on that in rural communities and poor communities across this country. So I think that everybody's getting excited. Everybody's rushing through. There's the infrastructure legislation. There's all of the pump and the noise. There's a powerful versus the, the smaller guys. But I think that we need to be having a much more settled conversation about how to build out broadband that is affordable, that is reliable, that lasts a long time, that engages people who know rural America. And that is why we think that the Rural Electric Administration, the Rural Utility Service and the Electric Power Associations have and could have a particular role to play in advancing broadband. All of the states have different kinds of laws about how electric power associations can get involved in broadband. Many of the electric power associations are not really sophisticated. And some, like Mississippi's law recently passed, will allow electric power associations to become an internet service provider themselves or would allow them to contract with small businesses like the one that Barry's talking about that can help them figure this out. but. We think that for longevity, we really need to have folks that are based and steeped in rural America. And, and some of the emergency programming hotspots were put out. And I don't know who talked about topography. It was just a waste of money. And hotspots that don't reach over a hill or a clunk of trees. So we need to be much more thoughtful about how we use this money and not let the small guys get run over by the big guys because they're wielding political power here. And be serious about how do we build this infrastructure across America so that we can make sure our children are getting an education and that's technologically based to allow them to be able to access the jobs that all the futurists in the economic sector are talking about. In terms of what our children need here and in other parts of the South, we need just what I said. We need to be careful and we need to be methodical and we need to build systems that last. We need to connect them to the schools and we need to make sure that there are people within the school building that can teach them technologically. We also need to have opportunities. Where in these rural school districts, where we don't have STEM teachers, where nobody is moving into Anguilla, Mississippi, then we don't expect that nobody will be moving into Anguilla, Mississippi, with some of the backgrounds that we need going forward. So we need to have, as well as telehealth, we need to have a way to do long distance learning in some of our school settings. So I'm just hopeful that all of this money doesn't come. And it's gone. And we say we have fixed the problem and we have left out large swaths of America and the
0: way that that happened in the 40s and the 50s with electrification. I want to say again, I agree with you on that, that we have to really only do exactly what you said and be very strategic and calibrated about where these resources go. I just put out a piece about No Child Left Offline, which is suggesting that we got to make sure that these young people have in their backpacks the same way that they have a notebook and a textbook, a tablet and a hot spot or whatever it takes, a home broadband service offering, uh, a Wi-Fi enabled school bus near their home so they can actually get online. But I really enjoy what you said in terms of we need people who know rural America. I'm going to shift over to Joe because one of the things that we're finding in our work at Brookings, when we look at the landscape of rural, we tend to think of it as primarily white or you know, a particular party, and that's not the case. No. Rural is just as diverse as urban, right, Alita? when it comes to the needs of people in the Mississippi Delta or the, the Black rural South around Louisiana and other places? Yes, and many of these rural communities are
1: experiencing high percentages of poverty. Moving to broadband and moving to a broadband-based economy and having young people who are educated now. To be able to be successful in life is a way to get rid of poverty. Yes, to your statement, yes. Yeah.
3: There's a couple of things that Alita said that I just want to touch on because she's absolutely correct. Yep. And th- there's not enough conversation about the jobs of the future. We saw this impacted with the coal affected communities. And unfortunately, what we don't have in this country, and it's going to accelerate as more and more of lives go online, every aspect of our lives, our ability to go ahead and retrain workers, it's done on an ad hoc basis without really forethought about folks who may be put out of business as a result of some of the new technologies that are out there. And so people will begin to look back and say, oh, we probably should, by the way, as an afterthought, think about job retraining and the workforce of the future of what that looks like and how we go ahead and address those issues. And and if you look at the coal mining of communities in Appalachia as a leading indicator of, of the way things have looked in the past, but then you also look towards the future and you look at a number of jobs, for example, truck drivers, You know, in the future, as we have autonomous driving, vehicles and, and some of those high-paying jobs, which many rural people may have, without an eye towards what other ways can we go ahead and help people gain access to the new workforce skills, Elite is absolutely right that we're looking at this through a pinhole, and we really need to be looking at this as a country as a larger issue. That creates disparities, and it just doubles down on, on some of the disparities that have been faced by communities in rural communities across the United States. And so I think part of the conversation also needs to be about that workforce Development. I've done a lot of work with rural community colleges across the United States. In fact, I have a chapter in a book about rural entrepreneurship. And part of this is how do we teach students? K-12 through 12, schools and education, how do we go ahead and t- teach them to be resilient and to think about education, not just as you're going to go to school and, and be finished, but as lifelong learning and how to leverage the technology that's out there so that they can begin to re-educate themselves on the various jobs and new opportunities. Because in the not-too-distant future, we're going to see, as and COVID has accelerated the changes and the adoption of technologies, so we're going to begin to see those, and we're going to see communities, we're going to begin to see winners and losers in workforce development opportunities. So I just wanted to touch on that because Alita is absolutely right on that piece.
0: I agree. I mean, in my Tech New Deal, I actually propose that one of the pieces or aspects of our broadband recovery has to be around workforce development, Joe. So I completely agree. We've got jobs that are going to be created around broadband that need to be codified and that we need apprenticeships and other credentialing models so that low-income people who are in rural communities, people of color, people who have been displaced, they can get access to these jobs. I, I just feel you guys like I'm still going where we're still, I have a headache, right? Because I feel like we have this opportunity with this new money, but perhaps we're going down the same tracks that we had before. Mary, you've been around for a long time doing this. Does it almost sense that you said we're one step ahead, but are we one step ahead to go two steps backwards, almost like the twister game where this rural problem is just so much more complicated that we need more conversation.
2: I think we do, and it is a game of one step forward and one step back. We're making incremental progress. I still hear people talk in some of our markets about the problem in the same ways that they talked about these problems over five years ago, and I know for a fact that there are thousands more people connected in these markets than there were five years ago. So the problem isn't the same as it was five years ago, but we can't wait another five years. So we need to move farther, we need to move faster. And uh, it it is incremental progress, but it's just not fast enough. Hopefully some of the the funding that we've talked about here will, will help to accelerate the pace. And there's some other good things uh, happening too. Nicole, you mentioned something about the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program, the EBB program, You know, which uh, last time I checked, there were over 4 million households in the United States that have signed up for that program. Now, granted, that's not 4 million rural households, but we know that we've had a, a good number of people who have taken us up on our, our offer through the FCC to give them $50 off their internet bill through this very good and strong program. So that too is an incremental gain. It's a way to try to to help people. It was intended to help people who had struggled during the pandemic and to help you know families who were in need. Not everyone qualifies. Yet. You know, you must qualify for this program. But there's another indication of a good solid program that's helping people out. And of course, you have to have broadband first. If you don't have internet and you can't get connected, well, you can't take advantage of that program. It is. As you describe, Nicole, at times, one step forward and one step back.
0: I have to agree with you on the emergency broadband benefit. And we have seen in some of the language of this new bill that, you know, Congress is going to honor that. It's not going to necessarily be $50, but it'll at least be 30 So for those of you that don't know, the emergency broadband benefit is a pandemic response program to buffer the cost of affordability. So Alita, a lot of what you've been talking about in terms of just general people having to pick broadband over bread because their money is limited, through the EBB, we have seen this uptake where people are taking advantage of the $50 for the service a discount or a subsidy and the $100 towards a one-time payment towards a device. The question becomes, and I want us to start going in for the wrap here, because I think I'm just going to have you all back. I'm just telling you right <laughs> now. We can still stay here. I mean, the question I have for all of you is, as we think about what digital means to communities and we think about, I think it was said earlier, what it means to rural communities. If you had a crystal ball and we could put in place the right program in terms of the allocation of funding and the right digital literacy programs, how can we be effective moving forward a rural agenda around broadband so that we don't necessarily always have to take that step back to be able to pass go right on the board game? You know, Joe, I'll start with you. You know, How are we going to make this effective for your entrepreneurs so that they can wake up one day and not feel like digitization is outsizing the marketplace?
3: Yeah. So first of all, I think there's a couple of things. One is understanding rural communities. My friend Nathan over at the Rural Community Systems Partnership says when you've seen one rural community, you've seen one rural community. And the reality is that there has to be greater relationships and partnerships with the local institutions, not just because that's the right thing to do, but also because communities, local and rural communities understand both the challenges as well as the opportunities. So in order for us to be successful at this, Combining and collaborating with the community colleges, with the K-12 through school systems, with the churches, with the religious institutions that are in the communities and rural communities, and really looking across with the libraries and looking at how you can create a holistic approach in lieu of a piecemeal approach. The other thing I'd say to this is that I don't think there are any bad guys in this. I think that at the end of the day, or companies are trying to do the right thing and, and it becomes a matter of economics. But we have to balance the approach here because really, when you look at bringing in broadband and technology into rural communities, what we have found is that the adoption oftentimes starts with the children and the K-12 through and community college and the the folks in in order to be able to educate the parents on the digital literacy, but also the need for this. And so I think that without a cogent plan of how are we going to go ahead and implement this in a way that is collaborative to bring these rural communities together to help them identify Um, One of the things that we're looking at is what are the ray of opportunities? Because in in the entrepreneurs, leaders that we work with, and in fact, we're having a summit on September 20th, a virtual summit that I would invite you and everybody else to join us. We're going to have a lot of conversation on rural broadband, and it's really a matter of bringing together the community to help them understand, because what we're finding and what we know is that rural communities actually want to implement and bring internet and high-speed internet to their communities. But they're not entirely sure and they don't know which possibilities are going to work within their specific community, whether it's because of geographic challenges or it's because of distant challenges. But what we do know is based on the leaders in rural communities all across the United States is that they want to be able to understand what the options are and then be able to select in a variety of different ways. So really helping them plan for not only what it's going to look like tomorrow, but also what the opportunities are going to look like in the future.
0: I completely agree. I mean, I think what you're really saying is we've got to be clear that the challenges before us, they're solvable, given the right people around the table talking about these issues. And I love that analogy that one rural community is not necessarily the same rural community as another one. Olita, what do you think we should be doing? You hear you got infrastructure, you heard Joe's recommendations. What are your thoughts in terms of making sure that we also center equity that you've discussed and get this done right?
1: Yeah, what Jill just talked about in terms of a plan. We need to have a strategic plan for how to bring broadband to all of America. and and particularly into rural America. I think that we need to have a larger conversation. The Emergency Broadband Benefit Program is a great program. $30 probably won't get us much. But if we could look at how to buy down the cost, how can we incentivize the companies that will come and build out the systems that we need, at the same time looking at subsidies for poor families and, and populations? What does that look like? What would that cost? But I think the bottom line is that there should be some planning that goes on with this money and that it is not put out here and the stronger people are able to access the resources because they say they can go farther and fast, but it doesn't build the infrastructure and community that we need that lasts a long time. I just have to say that I'm more the tortoise than the hare. So that's just <laughs> that's my
0: way of thinking. <laughs> Love it. And Barry, you know, if you had your crystal ball and you could look back on this conversation, I, I know you're optimistic. I know you're the most optimistic person I have actually ever met besides myself. <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> this life, what would be your prediction in terms of how we move forward to make this work, for not just your company, but companies like yours and other companies?
2: As we've looked at this market and spent every day doing this for seven years now. It's been a game for us. And We're looking at this from a a corporate perspective in addition to what we do to help people each and every day. We're a business. We're a business that's trying to help people. We're a business that's trying to be profitable. And for us to really grow as a company and help more people, it always has been a game of show me the money. These networks, whether you're a company that's our size or you're a big company, a big player in this ISP world, you need to have money to build these networks. It now looks like there is going to be more money available to build out into rural America than ever before. So that's the start. That combining with some type of public-private partnership approach, we have a model program in Garrett County where we were able to, to get some funding via Garrett County through the Appalachian Regional Commission, and have a a partner in the Garrett County government that was as excited or more excited about this than us. I mean, they've just wanted to bring good broadband to their citizens and to their businesses. So if you have the right mix of funding and whether it comes from local funding, state funding, federal funding with the right partner, if you can create models like that in enough communities and we can solve this, it's going to take time, but we are inching our way forward. And I hope it's not going to be inches. It's going to be feet turning into yards here with more funding coming. So I do see in my crystal ball, I'm I'm very optimistic, Nicole, that things are going to
3: improve.
0: Yeah, didn't I tell you he is always the optimist. So I appreciate that.
3: Nicole, I just wanted to add one thing. And I just, I know that as we're closing out, listen, the the pandemic has been so hard for so many people and so many challenges. But if there is a silver lining to the pandemic, it it is the absolute importance of broadband and internet access across the country and how important. Whereas people in the past maybe thought of as, as something for entertainment or as something of a luxury, we now see that is no longer the case. And so if there is a silver lining to all of the stuff that we've been going through, it is now it has become a public policy imperative in a way that it hasn't before. And government and public policy leaders across the country are really applying funding to say, you know what, this is in fact a priority. I'll just add that to the optimistic and positive outlook for something that all of us have had just a lot of challenging times in the past several years.
0: I definitely agree with you. I was telling somebody the other day, I've been waiting for this moment. I'm like the person who's at the prom and nobody wants to dance with me, but now everybody is really talking about the digital divide. And I'm happy that it has become a policy imperative because there's so many of us, our friend Larry Irving and other folks who have been out there for decades trying to make sure that people understand this concept. But what's so interesting as we wrap up, first and foremost, you all, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for actually being here today and talking about this very complicated issue. So Olita, Barry, Joe, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you Nicole. very much. You know, what's so interesting about this conversation that I hope everybody leaves with, obviously, it takes money to build in rural America. And so this infrastructure proposal will perhaps give us that down payment that Representative Clyburn and others have talked about, which are important to cultivating the market so that we can actually get this done. It takes resources and people and talents of companies like Barry and big companies and small companies, I think we've heard, entrepreneurs that can come to the table and sit together and brainstorm as Alita kindly put the lived experiences of what rural communities need, which is the third thing. It takes people who actually come from rural communities to understand what the challenges are and ensuring that farmers and people who are disproportionately impacted leaders that are out there working with entrepreneurs are sitting at the table. And I love this idea. It takes universal service. And I think one of the things that's coming out of this bill is the fact that we do need to reevaluate the social compact that we've made when it comes to digital access. Friends, you have been listening to another episode of Tech Tank, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bites, not bits, where we take very hard issues and we make sure that you understand them, particularly from the ground up. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Tech Tank podcast. Please follow this and other issues as a subscriber on your local podcast favorite. And follow us through our Tech Tank newsletter. Which offers fresh content daily from our researchers. I am Dr. Nicole Turner Lee, the director of Brookings Center for Technology Innovation. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.